Pod Clubhouse. I was born to flex. Yes. Diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets. I like morning sex. But nothing in this world that I like more than checks. Hey everyone, this is Aisha from Pod Clubhouse, and welcome back to Podcast of an Ancient Dawn, a Lovecraft Country podcast. And we are back after a little bit of an absence. We have missed you guys, but we are back to discuss episodes six and seven. We've got a double header for you tonight. And I am back with Sean and Ashley. Hey. Hi. Sadly, we're missing Kenny this evening for our podcast, but... um, he will be sorely missed, but we're going to try to truck on without him tonight and discuss these amazing episodes. We're going to discuss episodes six and seven. The first episode, Meet Me in Daegu. Ashley, were you at all ready to <laughs> to Korea? Every time a new episode starts, I'm like, what is going to be the flavor of the evening? I was not ready for the Judy Garland moments, but it made sense that we would have another non-white woman and she'd be Japanese. And I just had a feeling that the entire time we were going to run into Tick. So that was like my anticipation. I did not expect what we encountered in this episode. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. incredible. I mean, we knew that he had a South Korean angle. I mean, he had been, obviously there was a woman he was calling. And of course, once you replay those scenes in previous episodes, and in fact, they do that, if you watched it directly on HBO, they did that in the recap that opened the episode. All of a sudden, once you've watched the episode, you go back and you watch it again, you're like, oh, all those conversations make sense. Because otherwise, you're like, why is he calling this random woman in South Korea? And she's like, I told you. He's like, you were right. And then once you get through this episode, it makes a lot more sense. But it definitely adds an interesting flavor because this show went in a completely different direction you know, most outside of Tick, none of the main cast members were in this episode. It took place entirely in Korea. Yes. So it, it led for a, an unusual, it's almost like it was sort of like an intermission, if you will, because it is halfway through the season. And it's sort of like, okay, let's stop, break, go back three or four or five years, and let's tell you about some stuff that happened when Tick was in Korea. So it definitely was probably the most intriguing of the episodes, maybe not the most intriguing, but one of that we've seen so far. Yeah. And I, I have to apologize. I totally said the wrong country. I meant to say South Korea. And when, when we have Tick encountering this young woman, it really made sense that he handled the situation with uh, Christina and the Braithwaite the way that he did. Yeah. It, it tells you that there was something going on Almost like these things were in play years before they started playing out in these first four to five episodes that we've already watched. The Tick's already kind of been, for lack of a better word, like marked. Like his life mm-hmm. is impacted by these unusual magical experiences uh, that I don't think he saw them what they were at the time, obviously, but it just goes to show you like there's a lot revolving around this character. Right. And and how do we say her name? Is it is it Jiha? Is that what we're saying, Aisha? Yeah, Jia. 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 So what what really stood out to me in terms of their relationship was how closely their stories parallel and the ways that Atticus deals with his own generational trauma versus Jiha's relationship with her mother and her decision to basically sacrifice her own daughter to kill her husband. I mean, that was a pretty big theme for me in this episode was all of the different ways that generational trauma plays out. And then having this relationship where they they both seem to be coming to terms with their own healing and really helping one another. And then boom, we have this monstrosity, this moment of like terror and this crazy monster moment <laughs> that is super Lovecraftian and, and honestly didn't throw me off at all given the episodes that we've just come out of. So I found that the most intriguing thing really to be the sort of like parallel and, and juxtaposition of these two characters. It was funny because when when uh, it first happened and she transformed to take a soul, mm-hmm. I thought that those tentacles was, I, I thought it was more like a spider tentacles at first. I didn't, you know. Yeah, they're, they're kind of furry looking. and Right. I thought this is some sort of like, like spider, like tarantula type 
legs that are that's growing out of her and and then to find out that the Camijo or however you would say it, Camijo, Camijo, Camijo yeah. is a nine tailed fox. Yes. That was like that. Then it all kind of, I was like, oh, okay. I got, I got it now. But still, Man. a fox only has one tail, you know, come on. But <laughs> it was quite interesting. And like you said, it was like, okay, well, it's Lovecraft. So yep, sure. Sure, we the, we're going with it now at this point. <laughs> right. Anything can we're come out of here. Or, any orifice <laughs> and can go into any orifice. <laughs> we are, and we're, we're cool. I mean, look, I'm gonna be real. This is what exactly what happened, y'all. It's, yes, yes, and, and turn uh, into a bath, and we're still okay with this. I don't know about you guys, but I had so many overlapping vibes. I had the fantastic beasts and where to find them moment. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this reminds me of the matrix. I had so many different connections that I was making all over the place. So I'll, I'll be making random connections throughout this, but with, with that whole, uh, the tentacles coming out to attach to the different orifices, all of that was like super, for some reason, Harry Potter-esque to me in that, that whole universe. So it was really interesting. I wasn't scared so much as I was intrigued, like, oh, wow, what does this mean? And yes, learning about the whole nine-tailed fox creature yeah. no, was, it was it very was fascinating. It was definitely fascinating. I think there was a couple of parallels that I drew. You know, we've had this constant undercurrent of what's worse, the monster, the supernatural monsters, or the monsters that take human form, right? We've been through that in every mm-hmm. episode. And in this case, I think you have a couple parallels. You have how badly people treat each other. And you look at the mm-hmm. Americans coming, the Americans showing up in Korea for what we would call the Korean War. And they're coming in and right. they're the good guys and they're going to save the Koreans. We're here to help you. We're here to save you. You know, there. You know, a, a character made reference to it. It might have been Gia. She might have said, "You know, you come and you wait the same women you claim to save." And at the same time, you know, her and her mother. Her mother saying, "Well, you're not human. You're you're just a you're an evil spirit that I had conjured to take care of my horrible husband and to send him to where he needed to go and to you know take the souls of bad men." But yet, we find that she really is human. She can feel, she can love, yeah. and we all can. And basically, we can all love, we can all care, we can all fight for those that we love, but we can right. also do horrific things. We can do monstrous things. There's a quote in there. She goes, we've done monstrous things, but that doesn't make us monsters. So it, it's a great way to keep that that same underlying current, keep it there. But this story felt so much more human because it took yes. place one place. It was very intimate. It was two main characters. There were some side characters, but mostly two main characters taking place in one place. No big road trips, no big travel. It just felt very intimate. And yet at the same time, you have the Lovecraftian horror aspect of the Kamiho that really just kind of makes you realize, well, hey, no, this ain't no, you know, Judy Garland love story. This is something. Right. So, so <laughs> Bringing it, it back to the fascinating episode. Yeah. I, I like that you brought up how the Americans swept in and, and are trying to save the day. Um, in that, I was reminded of the scene where all of the nurses are lined up, all of the South Korean nurses are lined up, and the, the African-American soldiers are being commanded to shoot them on site because of you know their communist leanings or, or trying to weed out the communists. And what really took me at that moment was how often non-white folks are pitted against one another in the service of whiteness and white supremacy and like the bigger picture of this looming hierarchy that is there, this invisible system that's at play, contrasted with like them really getting to know each other and supporting one another. And and what you said, Sean, was so profound because it's like we have the ability to to be both and, you know, we have the ability to support one another and love one another and be in community. But then we also have the ability to really destroy one another in awful terrible ways and it doesn't even require the existence of real monsters um and so that that was so fascinating to me just kind of being able to see that play out in this episode interesting thought you say that actually i know when you talk about white supremacy you're talking about how that's kind of led the american imperialistic actions 
taken over the last, you know, 300 years or what have you. But I thought it was really intriguing. And I don't know if either of you noticed this, that in that scene where all the nurses are lined up and yes, two of them were kind of shot kind of in cold blood. Yep. But did you notice that the soldier, it was Tick, it was another black soldier, and it was the Korean, Korean guy. soldier. Mm-hmm. There were no white yep. soldiers in that no scene. White, no white soldier. They're, exactly. they're kind of putting them in there, representing that kind of imperialist American presence. Oh, yeah. But there's no white people in that scene. And I thought that was kind of profound. That was like, because immediately Absolutely. you know what each party represents. You don't have to look at color to understand what an American soldier holding a gun at your head plans to do with you. You don't have to right. be white people to figure that out. But I just at thought all. 1950s, it's a Korean War. It was just very intriguing to me. Yeah, because we still complicit in the system. It's so embedded in everything that we acted out in ways that we're not always aware of. And also, you know, these these are much more like in this episode, in this scene, much more gritty, overt ways of acting out that level of oppression. But it's definitely there and it's palpable, you know, in those moments. And did you catch, though, also Gia? Gia was like, well, why are you fighting? You know, why are you fighting for the, your country? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have the same rights that white folks have in your country, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're mm-hmm. like, because we signed one tick signed up for the other guys said he was drafted, you know, they're following orders. It didn't matter. It, at that point, that's what's almost so shameful too. It's like, you're fighting for a country who doesn't even want you, yep. you know, in another country. And it's just, it, it's heartbreaking. That, that it is breaking. Definitely. I thought it was very interesting that we've layered the count the count of Monte Cristo <laughs> back into the into the storyline, right? I love that she I love that Gia is like enamored with American film cinema. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so much that she also has, you know, found this love of and I guess a literary fan as well. And so that that was a way for her and Tick to connect. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that even being so far away from his father, being so out of touch at this point, he hadn't, it'd been forever since he'd seen Montrose. Right. Yet it's the one way that is pulling him back close to his father and explaining to her how it was important to him, you know, why mm-hmm. it's important to him. And the fact is that she was always, and she's always struggling with her mother. So I, I love the parallel that we, we saw with that in the, in the book again. Is that right. book back up every little while it keeps coming back on these episodes. Yeah. And that's another story yet, uh, yet again about generational trauma and how it impacts decisions. And, and both of them have these different ways of escaping their own trauma and, and dealing with it and, that is where they intersect. That is where they are able to, like you said, Aisha, make the connections. And it, it just seems like Atticus brings out the feelings of love that are so difficult for her to experience. And they both seem to make those connections, her with her movies and him with books and, and being able to express themselves to one another through those outlets. One other aspect that I thought was interesting here, because I think overall, you have, I haven't seen this, and y'all correct me if you have, but the one thing that I, the one theme that I, I noticed in this episode was that of redemption. So I specifically wrote this quote down. And Gia says to Atticus, she goes, we can choose to be the people we see in each other. Just prior to that, she had said, I think you saved me because she was ready to kill him when she saw him in the hospital. And then his kindness. Mm doing so and she started to fall in love with him and he fell in love with her and they both obviously come into the situation very damaged for some very significant traumatic events in their lives generational trauma like you said ashley among really? others and now here's a chance for two people to fall in love and redeem each other because now they can be the good people they see in each other the, that the people around them haven't seen in them and there's right. a chance here for them to do that and for both of them to walk away into the sunset, happier, better people. And her curse prevents that from happening. And he runs away, even though she tries to stop him and it doesn't work out. And I wonder if her vision of him dying in the future, mm. do with the fact 
that they were not able to redeem each other. They were not enough for each other. They they parted ways. I mean, granted, if you get attacked by nine tails and they like start sucking your eyeballs, I can see why you might want to run away. Seems like that might not right. be for you. Right. But <laughs> there was go. a chance. Yeah, gotta go. But there was a chance here that they had for each other. It, it, the chance was wasted. It was gone. And now does that put them on the paths they're on or, or is it just another kind of brick in the wall? Interesting. I, I found that moment interesting because he had just said, there's nothing about you that would make me not love you or want you. Right. And it was like immediately, bloop, you find out she's this, <laughs> you know, this, this crazy, crazy creature and, and boom, you know, you're gone. And it, it, it was so, I don't know the word for it, maybe like fatalistic in a way that yeah. all of this kind of ended. Um, abruptly. What do you guys think? I'm curious to see what you think about that very last scene when uh, Jia and her mother are with the witch, the shaman, the lady. The one who put the curse, I call it a curse, for lack of a better word, put the curse on her in the first place. And she's basically come back and saying, well, your mortal concerns are meaningless. Oh, that line. I didn't know quite how to interpret that, so I'm curious as to what y'all thought. This is one of the Kenny moments that I felt I was like, Ooh, Kenny, Kenny would say that this is so like quintessentially Lovecraftian that your silly human uh, right. concerns are meaningless. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that's exactly what this this moment was. It was this this bigger than you moment that, you know, you're asking me about this man that you claim to love and whether he'll die just for the same reason you guys call each other mother and daughter it means nothing means nothing oh good point and it was like whoa like it just blew my mind when she said that and and then burns up what did she burn what was that paper she was burning i was confused about that at the end maybe y'all can help me but basically that was what i thought about when she said that was you know this is a lovecraftian moment where there is this futility of humanity that comes across that's a good point. I don't know. To me, I mean, I would look at the paper and think that she's trying to say that that's how fragile ah, your, your situation is or how fragile your relationships or your humanity really is. It can burn <laughs> mm-hmm. like a small piece of paper and look how quickly it burned up and, and drifted off in the wind. That's kind of wow. how I looked at it, but it could mean, and I'm sure Kenny was here, he would probably say this, it could mean 15 different other things. So, yeah. And there may be some aspect of some Lovecraft story where something where a burning paper came into play that he probably could reference right now, but unfortunately we'll have to we'll have to wait for another time. And this yeah. but I, mean, I was asking, um, I know Sean had read the book and I asked him, I was like, is any of this in the book? We haven't typically talked about, you know, the similarities of the book and the actual show, but I asked him and said, Is this whole scene, you know, with the in Korea and the book. And he's like, no, it's not in the book at all. So this is, I guess, them, HBO, you know, the producers, them going, the writers going off into their own way to like make uh-huh. this a little bit more intriguing, exciting for the viewers, for our for the TV watching viewers. So I, I'm interested to see. Yeah, I don't think we've seen the last of her. No, I don't either. Oh, no, not at all. No way. Now, whether she comes up in this season or maybe she's, maybe they have an idea to bring her back in the second season, assuming there is one, I don't know. But we definitely haven't seen the last of her. Mm. She will pop up somehow. It'll just be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, I guess as a, the whole episode, though, do you realize that I would say 90% of this episode was not even in English? Did you guys catch that? That's true. That is true. Uh, that's, yeah, you know what? And I I did notice that. I watched it twice. And the, the second time around, I looked down and I was like, wait a minute. I'm not really paying attention and I can't understand what's going on. I'm like, whoa, a lot of this episode is definitely not in English. And that's when I realized it. I was I was paying attention more to the subtitles the first time around. Well, yeah. I was brushing mm-hmm. up on my Korean. It's a little rusty, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> no, I definitely do not know a lick of Korean. Well, Yangnam, which apparently is a very derogatory word towards foreign people in Korea. That's something I learned. Hopefully that's not too offensive to anyone who knows Korean who's listening out there. But that was right. interesting. I looked that up because I didn't, you know, 
uh, the Korean soldier guy made a comment. He's like, well, you know, in the U.S. I'm called a gook. And we've all heard that term. He goes, here I'm called Yangnam. And I said, well, let me look that up because I assume that's probably a, a racial epithet. And it pretty much is. And it's a quite offensive one in Korea. So my apologies. I'm right. Gonna- Anyone. But she called him. She called Tick that as well. Yeah, because she was trying to so, force him out the door. Yeah, but it wasn't. So it's not necessarily. I thought it might have been like a term used for like an Asian person of that descent going back to that country that has no allegiance basically to the country anymore. But it's really just an American. I think it's just a racial epithet against foreigners. Is foreigners what I okay. understood. It's what it's what Korean people have called foreigners in a very derogatory way. Wow. Uh, she used it to basically emphasize that she wanted him out of there. Like she was trying to treat him like your trash, get out of here, but she was trying to save him. Right. So, you know, like many derogatory terms, they get used in different references, but that's about the only Korean I picked up, sadly. But it was a fascinating, <laughs> so, language, beautiful language. It's always the bad words we learn first, though. In other well, words. Of course, <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I think? This is, this is my prediction for the future. And it may be totally wrong, but when she says that Tick's going to die, whatever is going to happen, somehow she will be, she'll come back into the, into the scene right before something major happens where he's going to actually perish. And mm. where well, I'm hoping, obviously, that he does not perish, that he lives, you know, at the end of this whole series, but, um. I just feel like that's where she's going to come back. Something, you know, something major, obviously, where he's going to be, it's going to be, you know, live or die. And then she'll be, she'll be around for some, some reason. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of mm-hmm. what I was thinking. But. Hell of a comeback. I know. Indeed. <laughs> then he's going to die. Yeah, I know. It does feel like we're setting, being set up that way. Well, anything else that we have for that one? Because that one is just, man, it was just a, it was a really interesting episode, and I was not expecting it at all. So I'm glad that they put that one in there. Anybody have anything else on that? No, I think I'm kind of hit on everything I could think about with that episode. It was just it was just crazy to watch. It was just unlike any of the previous episodes, which I love about this series. Okay, so we're going to go on to episode seven, and this one is called I Am. Here we go with Miss Hippolyta. Hippolyta, wow. This was, you know what I want to say? Ashley, I feel like this episode was for us. Absolutely. <laughs> Most definitely. This, this was an ode to, ode to Black women. Right. As soon as you said, I am, I said, I am a Black woman. I am. Right here. Exactly. <laughs> I am. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cathartic and healing to see this episode. We needed it. We really needed it, especially given all of the issues that we're going through with this current political climate, with the pandemic. I felt like this was such a necessary, it just brought me so much joy and resonated in so many different ways, which we'll get into, but definitely an episode for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as Hippolyta gets that Ori, or I can't say that word. Ori. <laughs> solar system thingy. Yes. She gets it right. She gets it right. She figures it out. First of all, she is absolutely brilliant. I don't know about you, but I definitely, and I saw this in several of the groups I'm in for this show, which I, I can't even count now how many groups I'm in for this show, but there, there have been several references to uh, hidden figures and, yeah. and mm-hmm. that, was it was it definitely resonated there uh, for me in in that regard and her figuring out how to tilt the different planets on their axes and make it spin so that it it opens up this time portal i mean it was it was cool the coolest thing that was something that and i think we can get, we can talk about it a little bit later because right. how always how she was saying that she shrunk herself you know that during yeah. that uh, the whole conversation that she had with george but I want to get in before we get into her journey, because this is right. going to be a long journey for us to go through. We need to talk about Christina and Ruby before we before they started off onto the whole thing. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, the first thing I thought was that Sean and Kenny were right about the potion. Yes. And we predicted that way back when we saw, you know, episode five and the whole moment when she comes back as a white woman. <laughs> to be fair. 
that one was in the book. The basement scene with William. Oh, okay. Was, there we go. I remember you I saying remember, I, I did make I alluded to it. I said that okay. well there's a reason why she's the same person as the Dell lady who was handling the dog. You did say that. So yeah. I, I knew that from the book, but I, I didn't want to spoil it because I didn't know when and where it would come back up. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, and when so when she said that, I was like, okay, that's definitely true. And we'd already sort of discussed it, but Christina reveals the truth to Ruby. And so I've been hearing rumors that maybe Ruby isn't Ruby anymore by the end of this episode. Hmm. How would that so, work? I don't know. I, I don't know. We, I mean, we don't see Ruby again at, in, in terms, like she asks Christina to tell her everything. And do we see Ruby again with Christina? No, but we see her in the episode. We see her in the episode, but we don't see them together again. So that's why I was like, hmm, oh. I wonder. <laughs> oh, I because you're right. You know, it's interesting, fascinating you said that. <laughs> I picked up on something that I don't, and I don't know if, if I'm just blowing smoke my own ass, but it seemed like <laughs> when, when we saw Ruby, when she's babysitting the kids for Hippolyta, when, when Letty comes back and they kind of make peace and make up, Ruby's personality seemed different to me. She seemed way more chill way more relaxed. Like oh. she seemed, I mean, she was very forgiving, but she was almost like with sisters. Like aloof. Aloof. And then sisters having all that history, all that background. And then Letty's basically like, I'm sorry. And she's like, yeah, no, that's cool. I'm, I'm good with that. Interesting. It seemed like, I'm wow, she's uh -huh. really forgiving. And I didn't even think about the angle that you're implying or you're stating. Right. This. I was just thinking, well, maybe she was feeling like that because she finally got all the information and it gave her like a peaceful feeling. But oh crap, I didn't even think about whether or not Christina was using the potion to pretend to be Ruby, which is where you're getting at, I believe. Because, so was, right. Because. <laughs> yeah. Well, because the last thing we hear Christina saying directly to Ruby is your family book of names. And therefore, it gives her a motive. Like, I need you. <laughs> I need to have your access, basically. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is what happens. Christina uses Ruby to, you know, have access to Letty and to uh, Pick's family. Wait a minute. She said her family, Ruby's family, which I didn't understand. So we're not talking about Tick's family now. Well, right. But we are we? Because Letty, Letty and Ruby are half-sisters. So maybe Ruby has a relationship with Tick on her dad's side that Letty wouldn't have. Because I'm like, because then if you start thinking about that too hard, you start thinking like, oh, okay, that's they related? Little, nah, they're getting related because then they're implying that Letty might be pregnant. And so I'm like, oh, do we really want to go down that road if they're related? First, but, of, all, first of all, Letty is definitely pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I didn't you know, like, jump the gun on that one. But yeah, she's clearly pregnant. I was coming for that next. I was going to be like, well, we know Letty having the baby, so. Right. <laughs> well, we don't know if she's having a baby. That's true. You're right. We know she's pregnant. Thank you for that correction. The The thing that really convinced me that she was pregnant, y'all, is that she and Tick are having the same dream. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. they're having the same dream. And that blood bond, That the reason he, he's dreaming that is because of his, his bloodline. And if yep. Letty is pregnant with his child or, you know, oh, is pregnant... Then they have yeah. that bond, so now they're having the same dreams. That yep. makes sense. Yep. No, mm -hmm. I, I agree. That kind of that I think was a little bit blunt instrument on their parts to kind of hit us over the head with that because the whole thing where Belly catches on fire and she looks down, I'm like, okay, they kind of hit us over the head with that one. Oh, but, here yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah. So if they're if Hannah has the book of names and ran out and it's somewhere on their family side. Whoever mm -hmm. family, I don't even know now what family. Tick's mother's about. side. Tick's mom. Tick's family. Then it's at some point. I guess th that's what they're looking for. That's what they're trying to get. But when I don't know how they're going to find that book of names to me. You know that brings up an interesting point, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, like a side tangent here. I just want to, I want to celebrate. And I'm going to use that word very purposefully. I want to mm -hmm. celebrate. In the last maybe three to five years, television has acknowledged both in a good and, and, and a brutal way the Tulsa mm -hmm. riots of 1921, which, yes, were, which, yes. which were gotten part of American history. I myself didn't even learn about them until maybe five, six years ago myself. Never in the history books. We saw it in The Watchmen, 
And now we're seeing here and we talk about, and the reason I bring it up, we talk about the fact that the book of names may have been lost in the Tulsa riots when, you know, everything burned down. And I have a feeling we're going to have a scene or hell, maybe even an episode of this series that's going to take place during those riots. We're Mm -hmm. going to see them up close and personal. We're going to see how these people and their family members are impacted. And I want to celebrate the fact that we're putting that out there like this happened. Just because people brushed it aside for 90 years and no one talked about it, it still happened. It still affected Black America. Still burned into the DNA of folks today and what they went through. And I'm glad that we're finally acknowledging it and revising our history to acknowledge it. So sorry, I'm going to get No, I agree. I I was actually thinking about The Watchmen and this show as well. And I think that we're being confronted with our nation's history in a way that we really never have been before. And it's so essential to, you know, not just like our entertainment of, you know, based on the show, but what the implications are for us moving forward in this time. Yeah, agreed. So we have now, so now we've got a situation where we've got two different things playing out. Yes. Trying to go to St. Louis. He's trying to see if he can find the book of names, obviously. He's probably going to hit a couple of dead ends, but I think he's probably going to pick that thread up somewhere in the future. But then, obviously, we have Miss Hippolyta and her journey, for a lack of a better word. Oh, <laughs> yes. Her her asc- Wait, no, 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 no. Her ascension. Her ascension. Yeah, yes. yeah this is an ascension. And for those of us who are familiar with um, spirituality, and I don't necessarily mean Christian spirituality, I mean, there's a whole subculture right now that is becoming more mainstream that's familiar with notions of, of the universe and what it means to ascend and to have a higher self versus a lower self or shadow side. This episode resonated so much with that. There was astral travel and different universes and past lives and naming yourself, like the the, the notion of like owning who you are and naming yourself. That was, I mean, it was, it was a powerful episode, y'all. Very powerful. Let's break some of that down then. Let's, 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 let's take that apart. The first thing that comes to mind is her waking up in the space and, and being completely naked and we get to see her naked body and, and there's, oh my gosh, the body positivity coming out of this episode. All of the what? beautiful vibes of womanhood are resonating mm-hmm. and, and her having these weird crystals implanted into her arms and not being able to like, just being disoriented. It actually reminded me, oh wow, it reminded me of when Ruby woke up in what's her name's body. Mm-hmm. And it was like a completely opposite effect of like a descent versus an ascent. Okay. Uh-huh. So descending into like becoming something that's awful while we have Hippolyta really finding her highest self. Um, and so we have like dark and light, yin and yang kind of happening in the show. But but Hippolyta really is just like, what's going on? And And then we have this figure, this tall black woman godlike figure come in who's like, I am. Mm-hmm. And you know, what, what is like, what's that about? I, I have so many questions about that. Like, I mean, these thoughts are just rolling in my head about like what this could mean and what the implications are for Hippolyta and what the beginning of her journey will be. And and why did she say you're not in a prison, but yet lock her away in this room to try and figure out how she's going to escape and what this all means for her. So there's just so many unanswered questions in the beginning. And I think as we go through that with her, we're in the moment with her trying to process what's happening. It prepares us for sort of this Matrix-like, you have the power. You know, I don't remember, I don't know if y'all remember the Matrix, but it reminded me of when Neo isn't fully aware of the power that he he possesses. And slowly goes through all of these training programs. And um, Morpheus is like, you are the one, like you just have to unlock it, you know? And so right. eventually he, it's another ascension journey. It, it's another, you know, hero's journey, so to speak. So mm-hmm. he's kind of figuring, you know, Hippolyte is figuring out who she is. And she goes through all of these various moments where she has to be, be knocked down to get back up. And, you know, and so I, I, those are all the thoughts that I had. I, I know they're kind of rolling all over the place, but it's really <laughs> a journey of her ascension, figuring out who she is and naming herself. No, that's absolutely valid. All very valid points. I had a couple of other, uh, just coming from my perspective. So mm-hmm. the, the woman with the large hair, the 
and kind of dressed, you know, in the, in the armor. She says, yeah. Who are you? what are you? She goes, I am. And that immediately made me think. So in the Judeo Christian. Oh, of course. Um, oh, yeah. Right. I am that I am. I, I am that I am. Yes. For God. Yes. So, and God right. as a woman, which I know. A black woman. When they play God as a woman, especially a black woman, that, that can be a very, um, that can definitely trigger a lot of feelings in a lot of people, good yes. and bad. Um, Absolutely. And I think it was fascinating because it's like, she's like, God, that's one thing I noticed. And then when she said, you're not in a prison, I thought, I think what she's saying is, you're, we're not holding you in a prison. You're in your own prison that you've crapped for yourself. Ooh, and yes. then it goes wow. into the whole thing about shrinking. The whole thing about yeah. shrinking, which I want to get into. Yes, to me, that is that is the critical theme here, is mm-hmm. that she put herself into a prison of her own making and shrunk mm-hmm. herself down to fit society, to fit her husband, to fit whatever she needed to fit as a black woman, especially as a black woman in the 1950s or 30s, right. 40s, 50s, whatever, in her life. Mm-hmm. So I'll turn it over to y'all to get your perspectives on it. No, you uh, hit the nail on the head. You hit the nail on the head yeah. for sure. Yeah. And and I totally picked up on that that Judeo Christian reference. It was just so like to me obvious and commonplace that I was like, oh like okay, boom. But that makes perfect sense that this is a deity kind of figure. And mm-hmm. I think when we're thinking about identity, so many folks in America identify with that and understand that. And then to hear, you know, you're not, you're not in a prison. And then Sean, when you said it's a prison of our own making, like we've put ourselves here. That's what I, I, that's what really stood out to me was that, oh, wow. In so many ways, we definitely cage ourselves. And in, in terms of like our belief systems and our values and our lenses and our various identities that intersect, what are the ways that we wrap ourselves in that instead of really breaking out and identifying ourselves for ourselves. Um, and so that's very profound, Sean. Like, I, I'm glad you brought that out for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I was most touched or the, the right word kind of like eludes me right now. But when she ended up in the, in the village and she was, you know, she turned into the warrior. She's now in this random African village and she, you know, has become... The head warrior takes over and finds that she goes from figuring out, okay, who I am to now I'm, I'm strong. I am this warrior. I am going to take over. I'm going to lead the, these women into battle, you know, and weirdly enough, it being a Confederate army, you know, as them, as they're fighting, but as that like symbol of, of all the things that really that they need to like what that she needs to, she wanted to battle i don't mm-hmm. know it just that was, to be that that scene was was very poignant it said a lot to me for me in terms of the battle scene in terms of the battle scene yeah but i forgot yeah. i was actually go back because we she first ended up in in paris right with josephine baker which was also oh cool. yeah oh i love that scene oh my goodness it was brilliant this is where i wanted to go with that so the scene in Paris when she finally gets free with her body, and you know how yes. it was the uh-huh. you know her you know the body positivity in this whole episode. Absolutely, yes. Uh-huh. Like, oh, oh, let me cover up. Oh, and here, oh, I want to be on stage, but I don't want to be naked. I want to hold myself, and then all of a sudden, you know, that freedom of owning her own body and what she wanted to do just kind of it came over her. And that was like, that was everything. I thought that scene was Paris and and Paris is sort of a symbol of like black liberation. I mean, we have, you know, James Baldwin who moved away to France and and left the U S completely. And so when I saw that Josephine Baker, she decided to go there first. It resonated for me as like a symbol of breaking away to find oneself and to be completely free of oppression. That is so commonplace in the U.S., um, especially as a Black woman, and, you know, that where she could really be larger and and be more full and completely liberated. Um, I loved that so much for Hippolyta in this yeah. episode. Yeah. And then the scene, if we go back to the scene where she's in the African village, and then they're apparently going to war with what looks like a bunch of 
uh, white Confederate soldiers, mm-hmm. which jarring, but okay. No, I, I get, I get, I mean, obviously I get the symbolism behind it as well. It's fighting their freedom. It's attacking the patriarchy. It's attacking, well, I mean, the Confederacy is a great symbol for it. Cause I mean, what was the Confederacy, but a government that was built on the sole premise of enslaving black people. So, you know, there's a whole lot of symbolism that can go into that. But Aisha, and I mean, I don't know if you want to say it because I don't want to take away your thunder here, but <laughs> you found out who that general, who general, oh, the she, general de- yeah. she decapitated was supposed to be. That was uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Oh, wow. Yeah, she, the one she beheaded. Yeah, yeah. found the KKK. And he founded the KKK and he was, yeah. So yeah. he's, so that was the, that was the exact uh, guy in history that she was killing. I read that 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 those are the Dahomey Amazons. They were a real life all female tribe of fighters, oh. and they fought. Yeah, they fought invading French soldiers. They fought. They fought French soldiers. So, like, what I thought about when I saw the episode were the Dora Milaje from Black Panther, because that was my only like point of reference to right, right. A, a group of women fighters like that. And I love the Dormelage from Black Panther so much. So that was immediately my first thought. But then when I started to look at some of the history behind those scenes, it, it came to light that they're basically a group of the, probably the only known group of all female tribe, all female fighters. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that. I learned something new mm-hmm. today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I, I also picked up on something. This is kind of going back to the to the Josephine Baker scene. Did y'all see Frida Kahlo in there? Yeah, I did. Yo. I was like, go back, go back. Look, it was Frida Kahlo. <laughs> I, I, just that. That. I just had to drop that name real quick. Like, hey, did we, yeah. did we say Frida Kahlo? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I definitely saw that. That was really cool. This is a, a gorgeous episode. Just a really yeah. gorgeous episode. Um, I have a friend who's really well-versed in like, African history, I guess. And, and he was like, ah, they, they could have done so much better with this. But I think for us as a people, it was just so important to see some representation of ourselves in a powerful way. So I think even if some of the bits and pieces aren't necessarily as accurate as they could be, I just love that we were given this visual, right? Kind of like Black is King. A lot of folks had a lot to say about Beyonce's depiction of just all of the different costumes and the, the, the locations and everything, all the different ways that Black people are depicted there. But I think that right now at this moment, we really just need something to hold on to that gives us hope, that gives us some kind of pride in ourselves. And I think that's important for us to feel right now based on this episode. And I, I saw so much positive feedback on Facebook and on other platforms where we're talking about all the, the episodes. And it was just such a resounding yes to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I just love how this show does that. They just throw these uh-huh. little in there. When Hippolyta was just driving in the beginning of the episode and she sees a, a motorcyclist come up next to her. Oh, yes. Oh, that motorcyclist that. was Bessie B. Stringfield, the first African-American yes. ever ride solo across the United States. Amazing. I was so, so I was like, wow, when do you see that? <laughs> so cool. Yeah. You know, know what I mean? Little things like that, that you're like, and I, and I, you know, heard a little bit somewhere else, then went mm-hmm. to do some research and bam, there it was. And that's, it was exactly her. So those are the things wow. that you don't that you may not have been taught in your history. Mm-hmm. You may exactly. Not, yeah. You may not have even considered, and then here it is. It's bringing it out for you to go look it up and to like mm-hmm. and yourself. I'm so thankful to the show creators for giving us that opportunity to learn some of these different forgotten parts of our story. Absolutely. One thing that I, I wanted to point out, I wanted to bring it up for personal reasons. I, the, the scene where Hippolyte is talking to George and he basically, she basically tells him, I shrank for you. I was a discoverer. I was, you know, all these things I wanted to be and I shrank in order to be your wife. And I thought, wow. And now coming from the husband's point of view, I looked over at my wife and I thought, and I thought to myself, I was like, have you ever had to shrink for me? Have I ever done anything to make you feel like you needed to shrink for me? And I have not asked her this question, <laughs> but it it actually gave me a sense of like guilt. Like, have I ever put you in a situation where you had to be smaller 
to fit something to make me happy or to keep me from being upset. And knowing how I can sometimes be, I feel like the answer might be yes. And then that makes me feel guilty. And not that I'm trying to make you feel bad for making me feel guilty. I'm just saying, like, it makes me think, like, I never thought of it that way. Like, I never thought about my wife might have to shrink down who she is. And I think she's a very powerful, fascinating woman. That's one of the reasons I married her. But then I feel like she ever had to do that for me. And it was just that that's the, the perspective that I had seeing that. And it actually kind of made me feel a little bad because I think it's not just husbands and wives, but I think family members, we all do it to each other. Sometimes we push other people to shrink to fit the places we want them to be in our lives. Or we sometimes they shrink because they love us so much. They don't want to be too big in our presence. And I, I, I right. it's just something that really made me think long after the episode was over. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I agree with that too. I think we, I think we all do it in a way it, in no certain terms. We all somehow, sometimes you do it and you don't even know you're doing it. You know, sometimes you shrink because it's necessary at the time or mm -hmm. it's, you know, or you don't, or you're not even aware you're doing it. Yeah. And I, it, it's not necessarily have to be a, a male versus a female thing. Right. Right. It can be That's any, true. you know, Anybody, anybody in any type of relationship. You with your parents. Or with yeah, friends. it could be, exactly. It could be, exactly, anybody. So, I mean, no, I don't, I don't want to tell you that I've ever had to shrink, but, you know, there were times where I, when I, I'll say this, when I listen to her say all of those things and her mm -hmm. be honest, you know, it's like, well, George is gone and now she has the, now she has the state, the platform to be like, okay, I'm going to say everything I wanted to say while you were actually here. Mm. She says it. I, I was a little jealous because I was like, wow, okay, this should say something to us. Don't hold back on how you truly feel and wow. what you want to yeah. say to your partner and don't wait till it's too late to, right. to actually be the person you really want to be. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, I do know. I do know. Yes. So that kind of, yeah, it was real. It was a very, very, I agree, Sean. That was probably my favorite moment in the entire episode, just because it was so kind of real and raw. Honest. Mm -hmm. Honest. And very honest. I thought a lot about as a black woman, when I most feel like I'm in my power, can I identify the moments when I most feel like I have a voice? that I feel I have control over my decisions and my loves and my choices, you know, and like what, when are those moments when I feel like I'm being my highest and my best self? Mm. And, and, and I think I have like glimpses of those moments, but to be completely honest, it's not a sustained period of time where, where I just feel like I have all of this access and all of the, you know, the opportunities, like when she goes in and out of these moments, she's basically declaring herself. And then it she moves from one realm to another. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, what would that be like to just be able to command your own presence, like to have this authority to say, like, what is <laughs> basically, you know, and to choose. And I think that's the beauty of it. And, and what we what we realize is that as, as black women in this country, we often don't, and it's beyond our control in many cases, but there are opportunities where we can step up and say, no, this is, this is who we are. And this is what we're going to be given the state of affairs right now. And, and with the recent presidential debate, one of the things that came to mind was, do I sit with the language of anti and what we what we want to hear in terms of this person that is, you know, the sitting president? Or can I say what I am for and what I hope for and what I want to um, what I want us to become and imagine us to be? Right. And I think that's our power is being able to imagine better and to co-create something that we can name for ourselves. So that was the that was my deep moment in, in the episode when I got lost in it. <laughs> Bravo. I agree with you completely. Yeah, that's very powerful. So we see her. Now, here's the interesting thing. So we see her go through all this. She decides, and I think very purposely, she decides to shrink herself once again for her daughter, who she says needs her. 
And then she supposedly zaps out of the astral plane, but yet we're left with Tick, and she's nowhere to be found. Yeah. So I guess, again, Hippolyta is like, gee, we're going to see her in the future, probably sooner than later, but we're going to see her soon. But I just I don't know what it means and where it's going to go from here. It's just it was it was an interesting way to end that episode. It's just Tick, and he takes off, and we see that uh, Dee's comic is sitting underneath the blood pool from the policeman that she shot. Right, which is like definitely. I mean, obviously, we're definitely gonna they're gonna have to answer for that. This is the scary part of what's going to happen to the Freemans in the future here. And what does that mean in terms of them getting out of that? I don't know. It's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah. That is sure. Most definitely. I guess I would say we probably need to stay tuned because uh, it looks like <laughs> the next couple of episodes, we've got three more episodes of the season and I pray that we have another season coming next year. I haven't heard oh, yet. Oh, better. We had better. <laughs> yeah, but we've got a lot. There's probably a lot to pack in in three episodes. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about here in the next few weeks as mm -hmm. we go into eight, nine, and ten. Well, I hope that everybody continues to join us for this podcast. Don't forget to follow Kenny at Ghost Planet TV. Um, we missed him this week, but um, we hope we held it down for you, Kenny. Yes, Kenny. <laughs> Yeah, we miss you, Kenny. We miss you, Kenny. If there's any, which we tried to bring as much Lovecraft as we could, but you know, we just we we could only do so much without him. We can't hold a candle to him. No, no, no. Oh, sweet summer child. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. all right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ashley. And I'm Aisha with Pod Clubhouse. Join us again for the next one. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.